This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Glad to be with you this morning. It's been 50 years since the Roe v. Wade decision, which for decades protected the right to have abortions. But today, the status of reproductive rights is more confusing and uncertain than ever. Since the end of Roe, the nation has become even more divided over abortion rights. There is now a patchwork of bans or partial bans in several states. Doctors in Wisconsin are delaying or denying care because of confusion over the abortion laws. Nearly half of the Texans asked, 46 percent, said they didn't know about the Texas trigger law that bans most abortions. We've seen this so many times before, haven't we? Hundreds of anti-abortion rights advocates on one side of the street and hundreds more pro-abortion rights advocates on the other side of the street. In light of the anniversary, we are taking a look at where abortion access stands here in Illinois and across the country. Later in the hour, we'll discuss the history of Roe and where reproductive rights will go from here. But joining me now in the studio is Alicia Hurtado, Advocacy Manager for the Chicago Abortion Fund. Welcome back to Reset, Alicia. Thank you so much for having me. And also with us by phone is Shafali Luthra, gender and healthcare reporter for the 19th. Good to have you back, Shafali. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. I'll start with you, Alicia. I'm wondering if you have found yourself kind of reflecting on this anniversary, the 50 years. Yeah, I think one thing that's kind of been sitting with me just in the last couple of weeks is, or honestly, really, since the the overturn of Roe, is just trying to balance the feeling that on one hand, Roe was never enough. The, the existence of the Chicago Abortion Fund and abortion funds around the country is a testament to that. The fact that um, we've been supporting people kind of n- navigating a, a host of barriers for, for years now. And I think kind of holding that piece of, you know, legality row was never enough to make sure that everyone got abortion access, but also reckoning with the fact that since Roe was overturned, so many more people are facing barriers. And the barriers that folks were already facing are only exacerbated by the fact that they're having to travel um, across state lines, sometimes multiple state lines, to mm-hmm. get the care they need. Um, it's just been, I think it's like a, a tricky thing because in, in previous years, our, our kind of line has always been, you know, we're, we're wanting to push beyond Roe. And this year, it's like we we see the the ways that in the absence of Roe, people yeah. are really struggling. We but want to get it back. We're still, you yeah. know, kind of thinking, um, what what can we build as a future that both restores access for the people who've had access for years, but also, you know, goes beyond goes beyond that. Shafali, what's on your mind? I have been thinking just about how intense the past seven months have been in the lead up to the anniversary. We went through and tried to track every time a state changed policy on abortion since June 24th, every time a ban took effect, then was blocked, then took effect again, etc. And what the past seven months have really shown us is life without Roe, it's confusing and chaotic for providers and for patients. And people just so frequently don't know what their rights are anymore, in part because their rights change almost day to day. Even if you legally are able to get an abortion, you may not know. And that confusion I've had folks say to me in some ways feels like the point, creating even more barriers on top of the really onerous legal penalties that abortion providers now face in so many states. Yeah. Briefly remind us, Alicia, what the uh, Chicago Abortion Fund is and the services that you provide. Yes, the Chicago Abortion Fund is Illinois' statewide abortion fund. Um, We support people from Illinois, across Midwest, and beyond um, in accessing abortion care. And that kind of 
encompasses a lot of different types of support. Um, we provide financial support, but we also provide a whole host of logistical supports for our callers. Um, and you can imagine that that has increased since um, last June, but that can involve bus tickets, plane tickets, train tickets, childcare, support with lost wages, um, really anything that it takes to get someone from point A to point B. We connect with folks, listen to their needs, and we're with them until they get the care that they need. Yeah. Shafali, what have you been hearing from advocates across the country fighting to maintain access to abortion? I think there's a lot of nervousness, perhaps, about what we are about to see in the coming year. We know that this was really just the beginning of a years-long, if not decades-long, fight over abortion rights in the United States. We are already seeing bills introduced in states with abortion bans and states with maybe 15-week bans or other restrictions to try and make abortions even harder to come by, maybe to put new barriers in place for people traveling out of state for abortion, maybe to make it harder to access medication abortions, which can safely be taken at home, can be mailed legally, according to the federal government. And what the sense I keep hearing is that it's really hard to see how abortion rights advocates in states with really strong conservative governments are going to be able to stop more restrictions from taking effect, especially in states like Florida, Mm -hmm. in states like Texas, in states like Missouri, where there really is a strong anti-abortion leadership in place. Alicia, give us a sense of what staff at the uh, Chicago Abortion Fund have been seeing since since June. Yeah, I think um, one point that was that Shafali kind of hinted to earlier is just um, a lot of confusion and chaos on our helpline, especially as folks just don't know if they can access an abortion, where they can access an abortion, whether they'll be criminalized. And I think um, on one hand, um, we have been seeing a lot more just, um, I guess, a lot more complexity in the cases that we're seeing with folks having to travel um, across state lines to get care. You can imagine all of the barriers that come with that. Um, we supported just kind of comparing pre and post row numbers. Yes. I'll, I'll try and <laughs> keep it uh, uh, not not too in the weeds for the folks who are listening. Um, but you know, if you compare the first half of last year when when we still had row intact to the second half post Dobbs, um, we we supported four times as many people with practical support. So that's um, all of the things that they physically need to get to their appointment. Um, and, and the total cost of this support was 10 times higher. So not only are we supporting more people with um, funding, with practical support, but we're also seeing that the costs that they're facing are much more complex. And we're seeing that the emotional support people are needing to get there um, in many cases is also more complex. Yeah. Um, the state has had some wins when it comes to reproductive rights. Alicia, can you talk about House Bill 4664? Yeah, absolutely. So um Folks might recognize the Patient and Provider Protection Act, um, but with the passage of this act, um, Illinois is leading the charge to both destigmatize and protect the right to reproductive health care, both for people here in Illinois and also folks from coming out of state um, and their providers and their support people. Um, And I think if I were to sum it up just in um, 
what this really large um, bill is doing. It's just saying unequivocally that abortion care, gender affirming care, assisted reproduction, contraceptive access, PEP and PrEP access, all of that is health care and should be destigmatized and decriminalized and accessible to all. And I think that when we think about abortion access in the network of reproductive health access mm-hmm. and in a, in a larger context of reproductive justice, that's how we know we're on the right track because people don't access abortions in a vacuum. People are, are you know, navigating uh, a lot of different barriers in their life that then impact whether they're able to access an abortion. So I, to me, the Patient and Provider Protection Act really points to the fact that our lawmakers are on the right track and shows really, really um, clearly that they're listening to abortion funds. They're listening to advocates on the ground. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. It has been 50 years since Roe, and today we're discussing the state of reproductive rights here in Illinois and across the country. Our guests are Alicia Hurtado, who's with the Chicago Abortion Fund, and Shafali Luthra, who's a journalist covering gender and health care for the 19th. Shafali, recent reporting in the New York Times actually talks about states with abortion bans and how even when they have exceptions, say for rape or uh, the health of the mother, few patients are actually granted them. Is that something that you've also heard? This is something we've frankly known for quite a while. Rape and incest exceptions are largely for show. When people in theory qualify for these exceptions, they have to, for instance, report their sexual assault. And we know that that is just so, so, so uncommon Often laws specifically require a police report about Mm -hmm. the sexual assault, which is even rarer. The idea that people will actually be able to access these sorts of abortions through exceptions. Frankly, abortion providers and sexual assault experts have suggested it's near zero. Um, One thing I've been really struck by in talking to physicians who provide abortions, they try not to ask patients why because – Frankly, they don't view it as their business and they don't want to re-traumatize patients. These sorts of exceptions, I think, get a lot of attention because when people hear an abortion ban without an, an exception for even rape or incest, many of them are deeply horrified. That kind of legislation is unpopular. It's easier to talk about politically than to get into the nuances of the fact that even when these exceptions exist, they don't matter for people. Mm. You've covered how there's uh, beginning to be some sort of fractures within the Republican Party when it comes to abortion bans. Can you talk a bit more about that? This is in some ways really unsurprising because we saw Republicans largely who oppose abortion pushing restrictions on the procedure for years and in some cases decades without ever expecting that they would get the opportunity to enforce them. And now that we're here, one of the big questions that is starting to divide them is, do they want to pass laws that would open up pregnant people themselves to prosecution? So far, people can be prosecuted and have been prosecuted for miscarriage through other statutes, murder statutes, negligence, chemical endangerment. These are largely seen as abuses of those laws. Typically, abortion bans themselves do not tell you that the person who is pregnant is also committing a crime. We're seeing a couple of states with bills in place that would do that, but those have also attracted a lot of pushback, including from major anti-abortion groups who worry about the backlash to these kinds of policies. Mm -hmm. I think over the next few months, it will be really interesting to see 
if there is any shift and if the the folks who really do want abortion outlawed, who oppose it in all forms, then do take this next step of passing laws that then would punish the people themselves who sometimes are trying outside of the medical system to access medication abortions. Anything to add, Alicia? I saw you nodding there as we talked about exceptions a moment ago. Yeah, I mean, so on the on the topic of exceptions, I just think from the standpoint of someone who works on our helpline and is talking to people, um, we at CAF don't have any sort of, um, you know, just we don't have any questions that that ask people their circumstances or we're open to people coming to us talking about what they need and we respond to that and i think that when you think about abortion as um a stigmatized form of health care as well as the fact that a lot of people are um asking for help and and having to navigate systems that are constantly having these um, forms of means testings that have certain eligibility requirements. Um, they're coming to us prepared to have to, you know, bear their soul in order yeah. to get support. And that's just not how we operate. Um, and I know that when, you know, you're providing care, that's not how it should operate. People should um, move with trust. And I think that um, in, in an ideal system, that's how that would work. Um, well, what else have you all learned over the last seven months or so just about movement building around abortion access? Yeah. So I think um, one big takeaway is that abortion access is popular. People are ready to fight for um, accessible abortion care. People are ready to learn what's happening on the ground. Um, To me, and I could talk about this all day, I'm very um, passionate just about the fact that a a strong fight for abortion access is is going to be necessary in the years to come. And I think that for me, that means a multi-layered strategy. So some of that is what abortion funds are doing right now, which is crisis mitigation, mm-hmm. building um, the expertise, um, gathering what people are facing on the ground in terms of access to abortion. Um, and then on top of that, working with elected officials to create protections, supporting and uplifting people who have had abortions, um, getting people to talk about and be public about their support for abortion, breaking down cultural stigma. I think there's so much right now that um, feels overwhelming. Mm -hmm. But in some ways, when we think about grassroots organizing, it really just starts with talking to your community. And I feel like that's been something that at CAF um, we're very passionate about, just opening up conversations about abortion. Shafali, what are you paying attention to over the next year when it comes to reproductive rights? You talked earlier about the nervousness that is felt by advocates who are trying themselves to look ahead. There are a few states that I am just really paying close attention to. I I do think Florida is one of the most interesting and important states. We know that regionally it really matters for folks in a lot of the Southeast because it's nearer than maybe going to a bluer state with abortion guaranteed up until viability. But we also know that there is a lot of discussion in the legislature there, including from the governor who will likely run for president about enacting further restrictions. I am also really curious about what we will see in states like Missouri and Texas that have already banned abortion, but that have been on the vanguard of developing new ways to further limit access. Now that abortion is outlawed in those states, what are legislators planning to make it harder for folks to access the procedure through travel, through medication abortion, through mail? And then finally, I just really think that 
what happens with people's ability to access medication abortion, the clash between federal laws saying that this is an approved drug that you can take Mm. compared to state restrictions that go against that evidence-backed approval. That feels like a really important policy battle to watch from a legal standpoint, from an access standpoint, and from a science standpoint. We'll leave it there. That was Shafali Luthra, who's a journalist for the 19th covering gender and health care, and Alicia Hurtado, communications and advocacy manager for the Chicago Abortion Fund. Thank you both. Back now with more Reset. I'm your host, Sasha Ann Simons. We just heard from a journalist and an abortion rights advocate about where things stand for patients across the country and here in Illinois. Now we're going to take a broader look at Roe v. Wade and what the future of reproductive health holds. Joining me now to discuss is Katie Watson, Northwestern University bioethicist and author of the book Scarlet A. Welcome back to Reset, Katie. Hi, Sasha Ann. Also with us is Joanna Schoen, professor of history at Rutgers University, also author of several books, including Abortion After Roe. So good to have you, Joanna. Thank you so much. And hello. I want to start where I did with our previous guests. I want to ask each of you if this 50th anniversary has you reflecting on anything in particular. You first, Katie. Oh, absolutely. Um, I've been thinking about the idea that you can reverse a precedent, but you can't kill a good idea which is that women mm. are people, too. Yeah. And the road precedent is more than just a precedent. It's a cultural phenomenon. Every woman of reproductive age in this country has grown up with the expectation of legal abortion. And Roe as a doctrine has been carried forward in legislation, like the Illinois Reproductive Health Act and state constitution and analysis, So when people say Roe is dead, I sort of think, well, yes and no. And it's also the case that American women are not standing still for this. So a third of women of reproductive age live in banned states, yet the preliminary data is that the abortion rate has only gone down 6%. Mm -hmm. So women are traveling in large numbers, and some in that 6% group are using self-managed abortion at home. So I don't it's it's a very difficult anniversary. This is the first time in America that a major civil rights case has been reversed to take away rights. So it's about so much more than abortion. But it's been heartening to see how you you can't kill Roe, really. What's on your mind, Joanna? Actually, something similar. I mean, to a certain extent, you can't put the genie back into the bottle, right? And I think one of the things that abortion rights advocates have said for the last five decades and before is that regardless of the legal status of abortion, women are always going to need abortions and they are always going to have abortions. So I think the data that Katie um, just gave us that says that the number of abortions has only gone down slightly uh, really kind of illustrates that. I think as disappointed as I am at the Dobbs decision. I also see this as a huge educational opportunities because I'm sure this is also true for Katie, but um, we have been asked so many times since the Dobbs decision to kind of talk about its impact and why access to legal abortion is so important. And so I feel like this is also an opportunity really um, to kind of talk about 
the impact that access to abortion really has on women's lives today and how that has changed over the last five decades. Katie, the right to uh, an abortion was established in Roe through a right to privacy. Remind us of the legal context for the original reasoning behind this decision. Yes. um, The right to privacy was established in 1965 in the first case about contraception, Griswold. And so at that time, quite a few states made it a crime to use contraception. And so this radical new thing called the pill that women could control and seem to be effective is what really triggered that litigation ultimately, the need for women to be able to use the pill and the threat of the pill to uh, a male-dominated culture. So the court said in Griswold, you know, the word privacy isn't in the Constitution, but when we look at this long list of precedents from the 1920s and beyond, that's essentially what we've been talking about, a zone of citizens' personal lives that the government may not enter, and the marital bedroom, and whether a married couple decides that their sex should be procreative or not, is one of those spheres. And then the, in Roe, and that, that the, there was a later case about contraception for single people, and they said, yes, that's a constitutional right as well, in 1972. In 73, the question in Roe was, does that analysis change if there's an embryo or a fetus? And the court's answer was no. It will still be in the realm of personal conscience before viability and liberty that the government may not force reproduction. It may not force you. um, It's a privacy right. It may not force you to um, carry and deliver a baby against your will. Um, And there are cases about um, not... uh, forcing people to not have children. And it's a flip side of a coin. So that's the privacy, the very rudimentary idea of the privacy doctrine. Of course, later um, theorists, including Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, suggested equal protection would be an additional and perhaps stronger ground for that analysis. But that, that really wasn't available conceptually in 1973. Let's go back to 1973, Joanna. What impact would you say this decision had overall on reproductive health care? I think it really offered women a control over not only their bodies, but their lives to continue their education, to start careers, um, to get established in a job in ways that didn't exist before. Um, So it really changed the lives of a whole generation of women who could now decide to space their pregnancies in ways that made sense for their own personal and professional lives uh, and in ways that they were not able to do before. And so I think that is really crucial in this decision. And it is something that, of course, um, after that generation of women who experienced that the first time, you know, women have taken this right for granted, uh, the ability to end a pregnancy that interfered with plans that they had or when they were pregnant at a time when they just didn't yet feel that they had the ability to take care of an infant or maybe didn't want any children to start with. Um, So I think in terms of women's ability to control their lives um, beyond just what happens inside the family, but also in terms of education, in terms of careers, this has been a crucial decision.
This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, we are marking the 50th anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision, exploring its legacy and what might be next for reproductive rights in the U.S. I'm talking with Katie Watson, who's a bioethicist at Northwestern University. And also here is Joanna Schoen, who's a professor of history at Rutgers University. So, Katie, in the wake of the Dobbs decision, there's been this flurry of activity from many states to, to ban abortion. But it hasn't been particularly uniform, and it's even received pushback from residents. Kentucky is one example that comes to mind. What do you think that reveals? Oh, I have always said that um, if you if you uh, look at Gallup polls, it sounds like our country's very conflicted about abortion. When you look at the epidemiology, um, it turns out we use it a lot. So 20% of all American pregnancies end in abortion, and that's separate from miscarriages. Um, 42% of unintended pregnancies, and we don't in the data have a way to sort the unintended but utterly welcome third whoops baby and the um, really unwanted pregnancies. And one in four American women will have an abortion before menopause. So it turns out to be a rather common um, healthcare need. And so when voters are allowed to be truly, quote, single issue voters on ballot initiatives, um, suddenly the support for abortion policy, abortion access, which is different than how one feels personally about abortion for themselves or others, but the idea that the government should be able to control private family decision-making, you really see that come out in surprising ways. So in 2018, the Kansas Supreme Court, not known as a hotbed of liberal activism, right, decided there was a state constitutional right in Kansas to abortion. Uh, Just this past August, the Kansas voters were asked to amend the Constitution, their state constitution, to say, no, there's no right to abortion. And 59% voted no, thank you. Leave this our Supreme Court alone. Leave our Constitution alone. Leave our abortion rights alone. Um, so I think that that pushback you're seeing is profound, and ballot initiatives and constitutional amendments, we saw that in Michigan voters turning out to add language, protective language, to their Constitution. So this idea of turning it back to the people may backfire um, on those who want to ban abortions. It's an uphill fight in many states. Um, And so let's also not sugarcoat that there are, I believe, 14 states now, if you include the Georgia six-week ban, Mm -hmm. that are prohibiting abortion. So I don't want to sugarcoat it that everything's fine and the people are fighting back. Um, The forces that are trying to control women's reproduction and I think put them back in what used to be called the domestic sphere of you you shouldn't interface, um, you know, Professor Schoen said, with with your public life and your education and your job. It's controlling reproduction is a brutal but potentially effective way to do that, and that is happening. Joanna, if privacy is not going to serve as the legal precedent for a right to abortion, what could? Well, I think Katie mentioned it a little bit earlier. I think uh, equal protection and to ensure women's equal rights um, would probably serve as a stronger um, protection for Mm -hmm. women's access to abortion care. I mean, I think one of the things that people have often misunderstood about the Roe decision is that they felt that Roe gave women a right to abortion, but this was not a positive right, right? This is not a right 
that the government had to guarantee. This was a right that women could exercise if they were able to find an abortion provider who was willing to offer abortion care and if they were able to pay for the procedure. Um, but it was not a right that was basically accessible to women on an equal basis. Um, and uh, in that sense, I think um, access to women's abortion, women's access to abortion has always been mediated and it has been mediated really mostly by men because men were the ones who were the medical professionals who decided whether or not they were going to provide abortion care. Yeah. Uh, men were the legislators uh, who decided on the state level um, what kind of laws they were going to pass to make access to abortion more complicated. And men are frequently the judges who make these the decisions about whether legislation should stand. So I also see this really as an equal rights um, struggle in the sense of uh, the relationship between women and men yeah. in our society. You know, Katie, as we talk about this patchwork of state laws and how unclear and, and just vague some of them are, what will it take to, to create a clear policy about abortion access? Well, I think, Sasha, and I'm just going to push back a little on the premise of your question. They're very clear that they ban abortion. Um, their medical exceptions are vague and unclear and have thrown physicians into um, just horrible places of wanting to treat people with wanted pregnancies but medical emergencies mm -hmm. and not knowing if the statute allows that or whether they're risking a felony in jail time to deliver standard medical care. Um, but the, it's not that these bans need clarification in my mind, although I would like to see the medical exceptions um, be broader, clearer, and not threaten doctors with jail time, um, but that they need to be repealed. And I think we could talk about, I mean, I do think that the equal protection argument is stronger, but if you have justices that don't, that believe embryos and fetuses have a separate personhood status, mm -hmm. equal protection will not win the day. It's not a matter of getting the right legal argument. It's a matter of moving the culture forward to understand women's equity. Uh, the culture comes first and the law comes second uh, often. And so, you know, I look back to 1963 to 1993, there was a tremendous 30-year run of legislation and court decisions in women's rights from the Equal Pay Act that you couldn't pay us less just because we were women to the Family and Medical Leave Act that said, hey, hold our jobs. We're going to have a baby and then come back, right? And then we had another almost 30 years, 93 to 2022 in Dobbs, for the promises of those structural changes to be felt in society. This incredible increase of women in the professions, yeah. in the workplace, um, in politics, uh, more power in personal relationships. And this is the backlash. Dobbs is the last gasp of the patriarchy because dominant groups rarely surrender power without a fight. And yeah. so it's not always about having the right legal argument, although that's interesting and important, mm -hmm. but it's about having this historical perspective Professor Schoen brings and, and the understanding of this. You know, I think about Reconstruction and then Jim Crow and yeah. then the Civil Rights Movement. It's not the same, so but that women's rights 
don't just come once and then we're done. No, you bring up an an excellent point, Katie. And in in the minute we have left, Joanna, as a scholar, what are you most interested to observe as this debate continues to evolve? I guess uh, there, there are two things. On the one hand, there are the medical issues that really the the medical conditions that are really now integrated into women's access to abortion that didn't exist earlier on. So, for instance, uh, women need access to abortion, not just to control their reproductive lives, but to be able to get many healthcare services, such as uh, treatment for cancer or treatment for many rheumatological diseases where the medications uh, that women have to take harm a developing fetus. Mm-hmm. And many of these were treatments that didn't exist uh, in the 1970s or even 1980s. So right. medicine has moved on and abortion got integrated into that. And then, of course, the other thing that I think is really important is that both abortion providers and women make the argument that abortion care is moral work and that they have a firm moral standing for wanting to provide abortion care and also for choosing abortions for themselves. And I think we don't really pay attention to the issue of morality and abortion care. We'll leave it there. That's Joanna Schoen, who is a professor of history at Rutgers University and author of several books, including Abortion After Roe, and Katie Watson, bioethicist at Northwestern University and author of the book Scarlet A. Thank you both.